Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe Lajanusa. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me again this morning on Next on the T. I am your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I've got four outstanding guests to share with you. First up is going to be legendary broadcaster Mr. Ben Wright, and I can't tell you how privileged I feel to say that uh, this is Mr. Wright's fourth time joining me on the show. When you think about golf on television from the you know, from the early 70s to the 90s, the man who brought those images to life was Mr. Ben Wright. Uh, so we are going to reflect back with him on uh, Chambers Bay and the U.S. Open, plus look ahead to the Open Championship at St. Andrews when Mr. Wright joins me again here in just a few moments. Following him is going to be another great friend of the show, Bob Friend Jr. Bob has been out on tour since 1990. We'll also get his thoughts on Chambers Bay, uh, plus what's ahead for him the rest of this golf season when he's here about 25 minutes from now. Following Bob is going to be 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. He'll be back answering your questions that you've sent me this week. And if you'd like Sean to answer your question live on the year, send it to me via Twitter at CT Mascaro or go to our Facebook page next on the tee with Chris Mascaro and, uh, and send it to me. We'll get it, We'll get it on the air for you. Sean is also going to be joined by Miranda Harbor from the uh, Memphis area local chapter of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Sean is heavily involved with that organization. Plus, you can find a link to the chapter on our website, nextonthetea.net, if you want to get more information or donate or be a part of that cause. Sean and Miranda will update us on the great things that they're doing there and uh, when they join us about 45 minutes from now. So it's going to be another great show. I'm so glad that you're here and you've made the decision to take a listen to the show today and join me and be a part of the journey over the next hour or so here on Next on the T. We are brought to you today and every week by our friends over at Seymour Putters. Let's hear a word from Joe Lajanusa about our friends at Seymour Putters. Golfers, has this happened to you? Great drive. Perfect second shot on the green. Only the three or even four putts shaking your head all the way back to the cart. I have good news. Help is on the way with the Seymour Putter. The Seymour Putter Company patented RST technology sets up the putter perfectly every time using a visible gun sight on the top line. Genius. It's like locking radar onto the target. In this case, the golf hole. Putting the golfer in perfect position to make a reliable and consistent stroke. The 1999 U.S. Open and 2007 Masters Champions both use, you guessed it, the Seymour Putter. 
So if you're ready to make more putts and take strokes off your game, log on to Seymour.com. That's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com and put a Seymour putter in your bag today. Like Joe said, check out the Rifle Scope technology to help win two majors and 35 tour events and counting, and it's going to help you make more putts too. I know it's been helping me. Check them out online at Seymour.com, and that's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com, and get one in your bag. You're going to be very glad you did. I also want to give a shout-out to our new friends over at Allen Edmonds, the shoes of great leaders from the Oval Office to corner offices to stage and screen and promising cubicles all around the country are a part of what make people successful. The right footwear is important on the carpets and the hardwood floors of our global economy. Get it right with Made in USA quality and value from Allen Edmonds. Right now, they have a summer clearance going on with some of their iconic shoes to make room for the best fall lineup that they've ever done. And for the first time ever, they're having an online flash sale of their Factory Seconds inventory. They've never sold Factory Seconds online, and they're going fast, folks. They're an incredible value for a cost cost-conscious guy who's looking to start or add to his collection of the right shoes for business or casual wear. The defects are minor and imperceptible, but the values are big, up to $200 off, folks. Go to allenedmonds.com to check out availability. Allen Edmonds is an American original. All right, let's kick off the show today like we do every week by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. We want to thank all of you for your daily sacrifices and what you do every day to help keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank our veterans who, you know, have done so much for us over the many years. We truly appreciate everything our military personnel do to preserve, uh, to preserve our freedoms and protect our liberties that allows the rest of us to do what we do. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to have our show be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. And I also want to remind our veterans, be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. It's a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information designed specifically for our veterans that I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial. Again, check it out, globalvoiceforveterans.org. And I also want to thank everyone listening across the Internet on great radio sites carrying our show, like iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spreaker, Stitcher, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio as well. Plus, if someone's dragging you to the mall or the grocery store, you're just simply tired of the same old, same old on your commute, download the Player.fm or Stitcher app on your smartphone so you can take us with you everywhere you go. Let us give you something fun to focus on while you're out and about. All right. Now joining me on the Seymour Putters guest line is Mr. Ben Wright. Like I mentioned in the intro, I've never, you know, I never would have guessed that I would have the honor and the privilege of saying this is Mr. Wright's fourth appearance with me on the show. He was the man I revered for many years for the wonderful way he framed up golf for all of us on television, making the sport infinitely more enjoyable to watch. He's one of the great storytellers of our time or any time. He will forever live in the hearts and minds of golf fans for the wonderful work he did broadcasting the Masters for so many years with CBS, particularly in my heart for the 1986 uh, broadcast of Jack Nicklaus's amazing victory. Plus, never forget that it was Ben Wright who used the phrase, yes, sir, to put an exclamation point on Jack Nicklaus's Eagle 3 on the 15th hole, two holes, and about 20 minutes before we heard Vern Lundquist do it again uh, in conjunction with the birdie putt on 17. 
Don McLean's song, American Pie, with the lyrics, The Day the Music Died is about the death of Buddy Holly. Well, for golf fans, broadcasting didn't die, but it sure took a, took a bit of a stroke the day that uh, Mr. Wright was no longer there to uh, to bring golf to life for us. But I remain honored each and every time I get to say that Mr. Wright is next on the tee with me this morning. Good morning, Mr. Wright. How are you, sir? Oh, fantastic. Uh, Chris, how are you doing? Um, very well, thank you. Uh, as we were talking off air, you've uh, you've got the Ben Wright member member going on at uh, your home course up there in North Carolina. How's that? How's that been so far? And what do we get to look forward to this well, weekend with that? Well, it's actually South Carolina, Chris. Uh, Cliffs Valley is in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, but that is uh, only a twenty-minute drive for me in Flat Rock, North Carolina. Actually, got a uh, a record field of 118 golfers in my member member. And uh, so I'm very happy about that. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a lovely weekend. I think today is a bit iffy as far as thunder and lightning is concerned. But tomorrow is a lot cooler and uh, zero precipitation, I believe. So <laughs> we're set for a lovely weekend. Thank you. Ah, good for you. That's fantastic. Mr. Wright, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the U.S. Open. I know you have a great relationship with Gary Player, and he was pretty critical of Chambers Bay and course architect Robert Trent Jones, Jr. He called it a travesty for how that uh, course was set up and played. What were your thoughts? Um, I'm really much the same as Gary Player. They are definitely the worst greens I ever saw at a major championship, and my first was uh, the British Open of 1953 when I went AWOL to uh, watch the great Ben Hogan win. And I, I remember vividly that his last remarks, Chris, at the presentation of the Claret Jug, he said, uh, and by the way, uh, folks, he said, when I get back to Fort Worth, Texas, I'm going to send you all a bunch of lawnmowers. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, Britain at the time was still uh, making a very slow recovery from the Second World War. And the Greens uh, left something to be desired because we didn't have the equipment, we didn't have the uh, agronomical knowledge that uh, the Americans have been so much in the forefront of in, in green uh, development in the post-Second World War years. And, you know, that probably was a, was a poor putting surface by British Open standards, but nothing was as bad as those greens at Chambers Bay. And, of course, the poor people who played in the afternoon got it worse than those who played in the morning because of the extreme growth of Poana, which is, I mean, a voracious weed that grows at an incredible speed. Now, if you have all Poana greens, as will be the case next year at the U.S. Open at Oakmont in the uh, Pittsburgh area, 
then you've got lightning fast putting surfaces, but uh, a mixture of fescue and um, perwana is really ridiculous. And uh, and of course, with the terribly uh, acute undulations of those greens, if you'd have had a, a really nice grass like you could have in the northwest, northwest, you could have bent grass very easily, um, then putting would have been even more impossible because the greens were, would have been so fast that the, the, the slopes thereon would have just killed everybody. Uh, I, I didn't uh, like the Open, I'll be honest with you. I liked the result. Uh, I mean, Jordan Spieth won the event at the 16th with that incredible birdie putt. He then lost it on the 17th with a sorry three putts and won it again at 18. But really, Dustin Johnson lost it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taken back to Bobby Jones, who always used to say that the U.S. Open is more often lost than won. And I suppose you could say that of Chambers Bay, but I'm absolutely tickled pink uh, that Jordan Spieth prevailed because, I mean, he's he's such a savvy uh, youngster for 21. He, I mean, he even deflected remarks about the condition of the golf course by thanking the marvelous crowds, and they were, and the there are lovely people up there, and they fully deserved the U.S. Open, but not this horrible travesty of one. You know, I, I hate to say it, but there should, probably should be an asterisk alongside Jordan Spieth's name. But anyhow, I'm thrilled because he is, you know, he has a chance to do three in a row, and the only person who's done that was Ben Hogan. Um, my great idol, and I saw him win that third leg, and I I, I bless that uh, going AWOL to have had that experience because it it made me determined to spend my life in golf, which I've been fortunate enough to do. So a couple of things I want to reflect on that, that you just mentioned. First of all, you, you say uh, Jordan Spieth should have an asterisk by his name. Is that because of the the condition of the golf course that, that he won it on, or why do you say that? Well, I think I think Jordan Spieth is uh, totally beyond his years in his incredibly uh, gentlemanly behavior uh, at all times. And, you know, it's really, uh, I hate to say this, but um, I think it compares very favorably with Tiger Woods, uh, who, of course, is suffering the agonies of the damned at this time. But, I mean, (laughs) I can't think of a, a youngster of 21 who has ever carried himself uh, as well as has Jordan Spieth. Uh, he is the perfect American ambassador for sport. And, uh, of course, he was picked up on the effects microphones saying bad things uh, about the 18th hole uh, at uh, one stage in the championship 
But I think those those remarks were were absolutely justified, and he was disparaging the fact that the USDA had chosen to play it as a par four, and they reverted to par five on the final day as they should have done. And uh, so he was even right when he was critical. When you talked about uh, you know the grass on the greens, is that something that the, the USGA should have known better about? I mean, they couldn't have they couldn't have shown up at the you know at the site you know uh, whether it's you know weeks in advance and surprised to see the type of grass that was on this on those greens and the mixture of the two. And to your point about the poian and how it grows you know uh, more rapidly in the afternoon because that's the type yeah. of grass or weed that it is. So should they have known better? Of course they should. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, the USGA has to shoulder most of the blame for that rather unpleasant event. Uh, and I must say, uh, Chris, when I say unpleasant event, I was taken out, as was my wife, by some friends to a, a local country club for uh, a very pleasant supper on Saturday night. And I came back, and I thought to myself, do I have to watch this carnage on television? And, you know, I only turned on the TV because I was on a bound to do so, uh, because I have to talk to, amongst others, your good self uh, about it. And um, it didn't give me any pleasure to see... uh, you know, putts going round in circles, as it were, off those ridiculous undulations. Now, uh, I must say immediately, Chris, that they could make that golf course a very fine one indeed if they straightened out the undulations, took a few of the too many bunkers out, and maybe... um, uh, restricted the elevation changes a bit. I mean, there there are three golf courses, links courses in Britain that I know of who have, uh, that have uh, elevation changes. Cruden Bay, Royal Aberdeen, and Royal Dornock. But the three of them put together didn't amount to the elevation changes at Chambers Bay which made it extremely tough for the paying guests to uh, get to see a lot of the action. For instance, the drivable par 4, 14th, the, the, uh, the galleries couldn't get anywhere near it. And then that was basically at least an exciting uh, arena in that uh, there were a lot of eagles there. And... Um, Although it was quite nutty that you had to drive your ball way to the right and let it come round in a circle to the hole. That is not golf as I have known it in my very long time following it and playing it. And to, and, and to further that point, Mr. Wright, one of the other things that uh, Gary Player talked about when he, when he was, uh, you know, less than favorable regarding the golf courses because it is a public golf course and, you know, people can go out there and play Chambers Bay. 
and the way the setup was, did 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 the course in the USGA actually do themselves a disservice by what they you know what we saw on TV because because of it to your point the undulations in the green the way the course is set up how difficult it it played and some of the ridiculous things that we saw to your point about you know you know putts that were you know way circular and 25 foot breaks and things of that nature that you know actually you know we're we're trying to invite more people in and get more people excited about the game of golf and to play the game of golf and when you look at Chambers Bay did they actually, you know, do the opposite there by saying, you know, to your point, you didn't want to watch that. And it was hard to watch some of the, the things that were out there. And actually, they might have done more harm than good by how they set this thing up. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think it did a great deal of harm. If the USGA want to attract more people to the game, and goodness knows, uh, we need it because the number of participants constantly keeps falling with each passing year. It's the worst possible uh, attraction to to uh, to see a, a golf course as severe as that, which is going to, if you're a, a public course player who's paying his green fee, minimum five hours to get around that track, even if you're on a very full tee. And I, you know, it's, that is what is deterring people more than anything else, I think, from playing the game of golf, is that it takes too darn long. And um, I have to agree with Gary Player that, um, that it was a really bad one-off. Um, I, I really think the golf course could be made playable. But as it was, it was a travesty. And, um, it's you know, it's stupid to say that it's the same for everyone because it isn't the same for everyone because particularly in the afternoon, every putt is different because of the humps and hollows created by Poana. So... The fact is, we got a darn good result uh, as far as history of the game goes. It's a, I mean, it, it was an epic performance, uh, courtesy of Dustin Johnson. But it, 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 the whole thing, to me, Chris, left a bad taste in my mouth. It was an experiment that I, in my opinion, failed totally. And unfortunately, USGA will never uh, admit that kind of mistake. Like they never really took responsibility for how they ruined Shinnecock Hills many years ago in the open and made it virtually unplayable. So let's let's fast forward a little bit. Let's look forward, uh, I guess I should say, to next month's Open Championship at St. Andrews, the third leg of the single season Grand Slam. And how do you think that course is going to suit Jordan Spieth as we all sort of have visions of a, of a perhaps a, a Grand Slam season dancing in our heads? Well, Chris, I think the very fact that he survived Chambers Bay probably will make St. Andrews a lot easier for him, although that, we all know, is a quirky golf course. And I don't know... Um, much about what what they've done to alter it. Although I think Martin Hawtrey, who is the 
architect of choice is an excellent choice. I uh, only once experienced his work in uh, in redoing Royal Dublin in Ireland, and it was quite magnificent. Uh, so. I'm hoping that the changes they've made are too radical, and I'm sure they won't be. And I think Jordan Spieth has a, a very, very good chance because he's so golf-wise way beyond his years. I mean, he, he has almost uh, Nicholas and Hogan-esque kind of knowledge uh, and, and, and kind of demeanor. Uh, he, he really... Uh, he bears down on it. And, um, of course, I think what is so attractive is that uh, Rory McElroy, uh, who, you know, did make a decent run, but misses too many short putts for my liking, even on lousy greens like Chambers <laughs> Bay. <laughs> but I think he's going to give uh, Jordan a run for his money. And there are many others in the field who are very capable of bringing a course to its knees. And I immediately think of Henry Stenson, uh, who is coming back after all kinds of problems with illness and so on. I, I think it's going to be a phenomenal championship. And I've got to say, Chris, uh, that as an English-born person who thoroughly enjoyed 37 years of living here, that um, I think the RNA do a far better job of putting on a major championship uh, than the USGA, I'm sorry to say. I mean, the USGA are only just beginning to wake up to the fact that bleachers are obligatory. Uh, I mean, there were many years when they didn't even have bleachers, and... Uh, uh, they, they seem to be way behind the RNA in their uh, nous or knowledge of putting on a major championship. And I, I really, uh, I doff my cap uh, to the RNA. I think it'll be a phenomenal event, and I only wish I could be there. So, and you, you talked about Rory McIlroy. Do you, do you think Jordan Spieth's run will give McIlroy added incentive so it's a little extra motivation for him as he oh, prepares definitely. for the Open Championship? Oh, definitely, Chris. I mean, it's a wake-up call for Rory McIlroy. I think Rory, if if I could be so bold, would do better to to concentrate on the majors and not play in so many inconsequential events. I think that probably would be my best advice to him. Uh, but, you know, uh, he's, a, he's a, such a brilliant performer and he hits the ball so far for a, for a fellow who isn't really... Uh, physically huge, but even, my goodness, uh, the distance he hits the ball, he can really uh, almost make St. Andrews like a um, drive-and-flick uh, golf course, you know, all, all but two or three holes. And, uh, uh, you know, I think we could, 
we could really see a phenomenal uh, British Open. I I am very enthused about it. But, I, you know, I don't take um, those two as the only two who can uh, can win the event. There are at least 40, 50 guys who can win the event, which makes it all the more spectacular. You virtually under terrific pressure from the first hole of the event nowadays because if you have one bad hole, uh, you you may you may uh, never get another chance. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about Justin Rose taking that triple bogey seven, which really completely derailed his bid for a second U.S. Open. So as as we look at you, know, you mentioned forty fifty guys that can win this thing. I was sort of looking at the odds and. Uh, it's interesting to me that Tiger Woods, uh, the odds on Tiger winning range, depending on which betting site you go to, from 33 to 1 to 40 to 1. And watching him at the Memorial, then at the U.S. Open, it seems more like his odds should be about a million to 1. Give me your assessment of what you think is going on with Tiger right now. Uh, I'm sorry to say, I think that Tiger Woods, for all his one-time brilliance, and he was as brilliant as anyone who's ever played the game. I think he's a sport. I think he's uh, physically limited uh, by the fact that he's been taking a lash at it since he was two years old. But I think, more importantly, I think he's mentally damaged uh, as far as the game is concerned. I think he... he, uh, doesn't have the confidence. He's messed around with his game, which was so brilliant when it was natural and encouraged to be natural by Butch Harmon. He's messed around with it so much that he's lost all the natural flair. And he's become a mechanical man. And uh, I think it's to his detriment. And I think, you know, he's been poorly advised if he's been advised, or he's made poor choices, if he's, uh, if he's in fact made his own choices. But I, 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 don't give him, I don't give him any chance at all, and I would be delighted to be proved wrong. But, I mean, he has won there twice. But um, right. I, I, I would say his odds are pretty long to even make the cut. It's going to be mm. it's going to be a very competitive event, Chris. So the what so you don't you don't think maybe with the since you know St Andrews is so wide open and we know Tiger can't seem to drive the ball in the fairway anymore, but you would think St Andrews with its you know its vast openness might give him more of a chance to be successful, or is, or is you know are you saying that you know boy you know you take the whole thing into account his short game struggles and that sort of thing. And overall, the, the opportunity just isn't there? Well, he's obviously got a terrific mental block about the short game. But, and you cannot possibly survive at St. Andrews without your A short game. I mean, if, if you start uh, getting mental doubts about your chipping at St. Andrews, you're, you're a basket case. Uh, before you start almost. And uh, I think that's 
going to be the case with Tiger. I, I, I'm really sorry about this, by the way, because I think Tiger, when he was at his best, was as exciting as anything that the game has ever seen. Now, he's a full-on figure. And, uh, you know, clutching at straws. And uh, I, I hate to see it. I think probably it would be a good idea if he just hung it up, as it were, and uh, went on to something else, like doing wow. uh, wonderful, wonderful work with his foundation. Mr. Wright, one more before we let you go. This weekend we have the uh, the U.S. Senior Open being played at uh, Del Paso Country Club out in Sacramento, California, and we've got quite a leaderboard on that side, Tom Watson, Peter Fowler, Colin Montgomery, and Bernhard Langer near the top as well. Colin Montgomery is the defending champion. He won the, the senior PGA last month. Bernard Longer coming off a six-stroke victory at the Senior Players Championship a couple of weeks ago. And it's always great to see guys like that and Tom Watson at the top of the leaderboard. Watson now 65 years old. I know you've got your member member this weekend, but is that a tournament you'll be interested to see how things turn out? Oh, absolutely. Uh if Tom Watson could hang on to win, it would be a phenomenal performance for the ages, uh, in a literal sense. I mean, it's a, it's incredible what he has done. He, it, I mean, it, it compares with Jack Nicklaus for his longevity. It, it compares favorably, I suppose, since he almost won the British at Turnbury. Uh, a few years back, and like uh, Jack Fleck beating Hogan in 1955 in the U.S. Open, I don't think anybody's ever forgiven Stuart Sink for beating Tom Watson. Uh, it, it's really rather rather unkind. I agree. That is that. That was a, a tournament, and you know I'm a huge Jack Nicklaus fan, but I've always respected Tom Watson for you know the duels that he had head to head with Jack, and and uh, you know what he's achieved in the game. And boy, I don't know that there was anybody not rooting for Tom Watson to to win that British Open a couple of you know it's, I guess almost six years ago now. But um, boy, I, I'm I'm with you. I am certainly hoping that he hangs on. I'm a a, a big you know admirer of Mr. Watson's game. I I, I think Ray? it would be. A great thing for the game of golf because I think, Chris, it would encourage a lot of us old folks, you know, to keep on trucking, as it were. <laughs> there you go. Mr. Wright, it is always an honor for me to be able to share part of the show with you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to come back with me. I, I hope you'll continue to do it because you're a, you're a delight. And uh, like I say, you know, uh, golf was always better when you were announcing it. Well, you keep you keep asking me, and I'll keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deal. As long as I can draw breath, Chris. <laughs> I appreciate you, Mr. Wright. Thank you for being here this morning. Good luck with your member. Member, this weekend, I hope you have beautiful weather and a fantastic time, and I look forward to hopefully having you back on the show prior to the, to the Open Championship because I'd love to get your perspective on it. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Okay, all right. Thank sounds you. Good. Thank you, Mr. Wright. Take care and all the best to you and your family. Thank you. That was Ben Wright. Boy, I, I, and I'm, I mean this sincerely. You know, there isn't a, a, a bigger honor 
than to uh, to be able to share the airwaves with Ben Wright and to listen to his stories and get his perspective. Uh, a great man, and uh, golf certainly lost uh, lost something when uh, he was no longer announcing it uh, on television for us. All right, now back on the uh, Seymour Putters guest line, making his fourth appearance with me on the show is another one of my favorite guests, and that's Bob Friend Jr. Let me remind you a little bit about Bob's background. He's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, turned pro back in 1987, and has played on the nationwide PGA and Champions Tour since 1990. He had five top ten finishes his rookie season and got his first win at the 1991 Fort Wayne Open. Had five more top ten finishes in 1994 and three in 1997. In all, he has 26 top ten finishes so far in his career. Baseball fans are going to remember his father, who played in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966, mostly with the Pirates, and was a key member of their 1960 World Championship team that beat the Yankees on Bill Mazeroski's home run in the bottom of the ninth in Game 7. Bob is also the Director of Operations for Pikewood National Golf Club in Morgantown, West Virginia, which I'm telling you, folks, is one of the most beautiful golf courses on the planet, and that's no exaggeration. Go check it out, pikewoodgolfclub.com online. And I'm thrilled to have Bob next on the tee with me again this morning. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, Chris, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And I tell you, Bentley, it's a hard act to follow. Uh, I agree with you. Golf was a better game when he was calling it. Uh, one of the, the great travesties um, in, in, in the annals of political correctness is what happened to him. And uh, I've had the opportunity to know him when I was playing and uh, know him after uh, I was playing. He's just one of the, one of the greatest men um, in the game of golf. Just absolutely love Bentley. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Couldn't agree with that statement more. Thank you for putting that out there, Bob. So, oh, well, Bob, yeah, hey, the, call, call a spade a spade. <laughs> Bob, for the first time in 60 years, your uh, LSU Tigers are golf's national champions. How proud of you are the boys back at LSU and head coach uh, Chuck Winstead, who was uh, also named Coach of the Year? Well, I tell you, it's, it's, it's fantastic for the Tiger Nation. Uh, look, we, uh, we had a great team when I was playing at LSU. David Toms was on the team. Obviously, we all were all very well-versed in David's career, and Emlyn Aubrey was my roommate all four years there at LSU, and Emlyn played on the tour for eight years, and a guy named Charles Rawls and this, that, and the other. Uh, we ended up winning the Southeastern Conference in 86, and we thought that was pretty neat. That was the first time in uh, 19 years that an LSU team had won the Southeastern Conference Championship. And then the program kind of went down a little bit. Uh, Buddy Alexander, who coached me at LSU, ended up moving on to Florida, had some great success there with two national championships, a tremendous coach. And then they kind of got into, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd call it the basement or whatever it was. We had a couple of people that I will not uh, mention their names because they're really not worthy of uh, discussion. But we had uh, we had one coach in particular that uh, I think out of jealousy or whatnot from Buddy Alexander tried to do everything the opposite of what Buddy did, and he really took the program down into the depths. Um, another gentleman came in and tried to repair it, but didn't have the personality to carry it. And then they brought in Chuck Winstead and Chuck has done an unbelievable job in terms of rebuilding the program to where Buddy had it and taking it beyond. They've had a tremendous amount of support from the Tiger Athletic Foundation and obviously Joe Oliva and the, you know, the AD there at LSU. And they have a tremendous facility there at the university club. David Toms has come in there and they've revamped it. And the golf course now can play out to 7,800 yards at sea level. And um, what Chuck has done there, again, is the ability to recruit. He was a great teacher before he became the head golf coach at LSU. 
Um, you know, you go down there on a recruiting trip, and the kids are going to be awed by what they see. And then you'd go and you combine the university with Mike the Tiger and Tiger Stadium on a Saturday night, and all the sports programs. Paul Mayneri and his base, base. Paul Mayneri was named Coach of the Year as well, the head baseball coach there. Um, you take it, take a look at that, and then you combine Chuck's skills as a coach and as a teacher. Um, it's kind of hard not to imagine, you know, with the top recruits wanting to go and play college golf at LSU. And then what they did this year was just, uh, you know, the first time in 60 years since Johnny Pott played on that team in 1955 to win the national championship was just uh, very, 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 very proud of uh, of LSU and, and what they're able to accomplish. And, uh, again, as you said, uh, we're all, all us LSU Tigers are very, very proud. Any time LSU wins a national championship, our chest gets a little bit bigger. There you go. They won the uh, they won the title over at the uh, Concession Golf Club in Bradenton, Florida, which I imagine has to be a little more special for you because Bradenton is where the Pirates hold spring training. It wasn't there when your when your dad was playing, but it's where they hold spring training, and they have uh, I think since the late '60s. Um, so I know you get to go down to Florida pre- to prepare a bit for the golf season. Did you have have you had a chance to play Concession, and did you have an opportunity to see any of the tournament? I did watch the tournament. I watched the tournament on the Golf Channel. I have not played Concession. I've actually had the opportunity to play it. Um, this past winter when I was down there, I was kind of based out of Bay Hill and playing and practicing there, uh, preparing for Champions Tour events and playing mini tour events to get my game tournament tough. And uh, the date that I was asked to play concession, I was actually out of town uh, having the opportunity to qualify for the tournament, the Champions Tour event in Tucson. So I've not played it, but I did watch it. And, you know, it's the amazing thing. You go, you take a look at this and, uh, you know, I'm 51 years old, and the guys that are, you know, 40 and above, 45 and above, I mean, we all grew up playing Persimmon Woods and, and Titleist 384 golf balls, which was way ahead of its time when it first came out, but that was a ball that curved a lot. And now you get there and you watch these young kids, and they've got these fantastic golf swings. The teaching is better. The V1 Interactive Software and UberSense and the other platforms that teachers use to teach um, – all the golf swings, you take a look at that college golf, the NCAA championship, they're all beautiful golf swings, and these kids, they all hit it a mile. And, you know, they just everything is, goes at 100%. And you take a look at the fact that, uh, you know, they've never really seen a golf ball curve such as we did. And, uh, you, know, you, you, I, you know, again, it was just, it's very, very impressive to see kids hitting five irons from 225 yards on a rope, uh, such as you see. But it was, uh, you know, again, it was just a tremendous – opportunity for LSU to shine and obviously as a national champion uh, it's going to make recruiting going forward a hell of a lot easier there you go so you know Bob I, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, on what you saw last week at the uh, at the U.S. Open in Chambers Bay should should the UGA uh, the USGA be proud of what they did there or had you been in the field would you have been upset by the conditions as well well you know, I, I'm on Twitter, Chris, and, and um, you know, I sent something out after the Open. First of all, I love the USGA. I mean, I'm an Oakmont member. I've played in four U.S. Opens. I've played in four U.S. Amateurs. We've got the U.S. Open Championship returning to Oakmont next year. Right. I love Mike Davis. Mike Davis is a personal friend. We played college golf against each other. He's from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, he played college golf at Georgia Southern when I was at LSU, so I have known Mike for over 30 years, and I have the utmost respect for Mike. I think he's done a wonderful job in terms of course setup. He's certainly, uh, since coming on and, and basically setting everything up since 2006. At 2007, the job he did at Oakmont for the Open was absolutely brilliant. Now, that being said, I like what the USGA is trying to do. They're trying to bring 
major championship golf to the Pacific Northwest. I think it's a fantastic idea. They're also trying to bring major championship golf to public access venues, which I think is, again, a wonderful idea. You've got Bethpage Black, you've got Pebble Beach, you've got Pinehurst, and then we saw uh, Chambers Bay this year. We're going to see Aaron Hills uh, in 2017, another you know public access facility. I think it's great that the, the John Q can go out there and have the opportunity to play a U.S. Open venue. That being said, I think that where the USGA dropped the ball was the greens. Uh, you know, when you qualify for a major championship or when you qualify uh, for a national championship or even a PGA Tour event, let's say you're a 25-year-old kid and you go to the Monday qualifier and you qualify for the Travelers Championship and it's your first time playing a PGA Tour event, the excitement that you have in your chest uh, reverberates throughout your entire body. You cannot wait to get out there Monday morning. You know you're going to play a golf course that is absolutely pristine, likely in the best condition it's ever going to be for that particular year. You're excited. You know, you get to your locker, you've got your rain, you've got your Titleist balls in your locker, and you go to the range, and it's all Titleist Pro V1s and Pro V1Xs on the range, and the greens roll 12. It's perfect. And you go out there to Chambers Bay, you've qualified for the U.S. Open, first U.S. Open you're playing in. For many people, the only U.S. Open they're going to play in. And you take a look at the condition, especially of the greens, and it is utter disappointment. Um, I thought the way that they had set it up, I thought that it was kind of neat, you know, where they're, they're giving people the opportunity for with drivable par fours and whatnot. I think that's great. I think that every great golf course has a drivable par four on it. That being said, I've never seen so many guys, you know, using uh, uh, bank shots to roll putts, coming, you know, putting backwards or sideways to have a ball go down towards the pin. I've never seen so many marginal shots end up so well just because of the way that the greens were constructed. Uh, you go, you know, next year with the U.S. Open at Oakmont, you're going to have uh, a shot poorly played is a shot irrevocably lost. Oakmont, there is no margin for error. Winged foot, there is no margin for error. At Marion, there was no margin for error. That's what I think a U.S. Open is all about. Chambers Bay, there was a big, wide margin for error, and the greens were just, they were, they were horrific. So I think that, uh, you know, you go and you take a look at the leaderboard. Tanglewood in Clemens, North Carolina, 1974 PGA was very similar. Lee Trevino won the golf tournament. Jack Nichols is in the running. Arnold Palmer was in the running. I even think Sam Snead was in the running. So at the end of the week, you have a situation where you look at the leaderboard, you're like, wow, this is a tremendous leaderboard. It's got to be a tremendous golf course. Well, Tanglewood was one and done. Uh, it, at the end of the day, it really was not up to a major championship caliber golf course. And I think that's the case with Chambers Bay. I think that the first thing the USGA has to do, they've got to go in there and they have got to rebuild those greens. I think there are, uh, some of the roles and everything else, I think it's a little bit ridiculous, a little bit con too contrived. And the putting surfaces themselves were a, an abomination. I mean, I, you, you've got all that West Coast Poana popping up out of that fescue late in the day, especially you know Thursday, Friday, and then moving into the weekend. They were, you know, they were basically unputtable. And, um, you know, I know that the U.S. Open is a test. It's a test of really of skill, but also of mental toughness. But, um, right. you know, if that was the only Open that I ever played in my life, I would have walked away utterly disappointed in the condition of the golf course. So, yes, it was a great leaderboard, but I, I, just, I just don't know if, if that particular golf course is worthy of a U.S. Open national championship. 
So as you pointed out, you're a member out there at Oakmont. We get to look forward to the U.S. Open returning to Oakmont next year. What what do you expect, if anything, that the USGA learned from the experience of what they did out at Chambers Bay and applying that to Oakmont, or do they not need to do it? As Lee Trevino said, you know, Oakmont is the golf course that the U.S. Open could be played on with about a week's notice. So do they need to have learned or do anything differently as we look forward to next year? Well, the answer really, Chris, is no. Uh, Mike Davis was out at Oakmont three weeks ago. He played with our president, Ed Stack. Um, the you know, the golf course superintendent walked around with them and also played with the secretary of the club. Two, Ed's a very good player. He's the CEO and chairman of Dick's Sporting Goods. And the other guy they played was a gentleman by the name of Mark Bope, who's about 62 years old, played college golf in North Carolina. They played with Mike, and Mike came off the golf course. And he said, first of all, he said, this is the ultimate U.S. Open venue. He said, second of all, he said, there is nothing that we need to do. Now, the only difference that the players are going to see if they played in the 2007 U.S. Open uh, compared to 2016, the only difference that they're going to see is they're going to see a different mowing pattern with regards to the bunkering at Oakmont. Oakmont has 211 bunkers. Uh, Mr. Phones, Henry Phones, who designed the golf course and, and started the club, uh, his motto was a shot poorly played is a shot irrevocably lost. And so when you hit a ball offline at Oakmont, now mind you, we saw at Chambers Bay last week where the fairways were 100 yards. Some of the fairways were 100 yards wide. They were 50 yards wide, 60 yards wide. Oakmont, the fairways are 26 yards wide on average. 211 bunkers. The bunkers, the average depth of the fairway bunker is probably three and a half to four feet deep. So most of the players that drive the ball into the fairway bunkers are going to not not going to be able to get the ball to the green. They're going to have to. They're going to have to. They're going to have to strategize in terms of, okay, I can't get the ball to the green. What type of shot do I want to leave myself for my third so I can have an opportunity to get this ball up and down? The other thing that they're going to see, again, is the, is the mowing pattern, which is we've taken the first cut of rough, and then you've got your primary cut of rough. Well, in a lot of the cases, we have removed the, the, the primary cut of rough to where it's now that first cut of rough levels and so that's going to allow the golf balls not to get caught up in the rough but to roll more into the fairway bunkers we've done that throughout the golf course mike davis absolutely loves that but in terms of the 2016 open we are not adding new tees uh the only thing that we did really in preparation for the 2016 u.s open is we had a a public golf course that uh we really used as a nine-hole golf course after the 07 open we we staged the merchandise tent there, we staged corporate facilities over there, parking and whatnot. The property was really not conducive to being able to park, you know, anywhere from four to 6,000 cars on it and do the corporate facilities that the USGA wants. So as a club, we decided to spend some money, and we, uh, we leveled that property uh, with a company called P.J. Trumbull, big, big earth-moving company. And now the USGA has taken a look at that, and that adds about 300 acres to our footprint, which is going to allow for more corporate facilities, a larger merchandise tent, better parking options. That is the only thing that we have done for the U.S. Open. The golf course was not touched, as Lee Trevino said. It's the only golf course you can have the U.S. Open there within a week's notice, and he is absolutely correct. What do I predict? As, as Mr. T said, I predict pain for next year. <laughs> the, the great Mr. Guy, you got to quote Mr. How many times do you get Mr. T quoted on your show? I predict yeah, I think that's the pain. first time, Bob. I, it was the first time for everything, Chris. There you go. So now, now dispel the legend, right? Because the legend says that uh, that Oakmont actually slows the greens down for the U.S. Open versus when the members play there. True or false? 
it's true and it's false. Um, on a daily basis, now here's the, I'll give you, here's, here's, this, is very, this is very interesting. On a daily basis, Oakmont's greens, like on a Wednesday, Oakmont's greens are yep. double cut and rolled every day of the week. On the weekends, they are triple cut and rolled. Um, during a, we have a big men's organization that's been playing for about 90 years called the SWAT. And they play every Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. And the SWAT has a large party in the fall, big two-day party in the fall, and it's fantastic. We've had entertainers, professional athletes, presidents, senators, congressmen have come, and they have actually played in the SWAT party in the fall. In the fall, the Greens will roll 15 for the SWAT party. Now, the interesting thing, and what Oakmont is able to do, um, because it's a, it's a perennial poana, it's not the regular Poe that you would that you would think. It's not West Coast Poana, uh, which is actually what's what's known as Howell's bluegrass. It's a completely different plant than the Poana we have at Oakmont. Um, it can take an extraordinarily low cut and and survive. Now, what we did at the 2007 U.S. Open is I was I was a player hospitality chairman at the club during the Open. As I said, Mike Davis, good friend. Every morning, I would meet him on the front porch overlooking the ninth green with a, with a cup of coffee. We'd have coffee and we'd chat, um, and he would give me the green speeds. In the morning, at five o'clock in the morning, with a little bit of dew moisture still in the greens, during the 07 Open, the green speeds were 14 and a half and above. And then, so you're wow. thinking by the time you get to about 11 o'clock, where they haven't really grown a lot, but all the moisture's burned off, you're, you've got green speeds over 15. The daily green speed at Oakmont is around 13 on the stem. So, yes, it's, you know, I wouldn't say they slow them down, but the neat thing is is that they can actually, they can, they can put the throttle down and make them unplayable blindingly fast. They'll, they'll cut them at a tenth, and, um, and they'll be firm and they'll be fast. And it's just, uh, again, we spend 660 hours every single week just on the grains alone at Oakmont. So you, you grounds chairman out there that are listening to this program, think about that where you've got a club that spends 660 man-hours on the greens alone every single week. That's, um, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. Bob, before, uh, before we let you go, a couple of things. One, um, what's, uh, what's on tap for you the rest of this golf season? Well, obviously here at Pikewood National Golf Club, my primary duties as director of operations is to uh, market the club and to bring in uh, new members. Membership is by invitation only, so people will, you know, we will have uh, we advertise the club with uh, some print advertising in Virginia Golfer Magazine. We're we do a Comcast TV package in the Pittsburgh area and the better suburbs around Pittsburgh. We also do some stuff during the U.S. Open and the Players Championship. And um, you know, we have people that come in and they inquire about membership opportunities here. And uh, you know, so for me, I have to kind of screen the people, make sure that they. Uh, you know that they have the financial horsepower to be able to do a private club, and for many people, a second and a third club, and then uh, bring them down here, entertain them on the property, and uh, let them see a good look at it. And hopefully, they decide if you know, they want to put a membership application. If it's approved, they become a member. If not, then you know you move on. But that's my primary duty here. And then I've got some more Champions Tour events. Um, I'm going to do my radio show live from the Greenbrier Classic every day next week. Uh, Monday through Saturday, we do. Well, I'm on the Western Union Radio Network every Monday night from seven to eight o'clock, and then uh, next Monday I'm, I'm on the air every single night, uh, seven eight o'clock Monday through Saturday of next week of the Greenbrier Classic. Come back from that, and I've got uh, Champions Tour qualifying in Chicago. So I'm gonna play a little bit more. Gonna play a lot with uh, prospective members here and do a little bit of radio work, kind of like you, Chris. 
There you go. And, and, and to your point about the radio show, tell our listeners how they can find it. Yeah, the radio show, we stream it live on the on the Internet. It's at wvmetronews.com, and the show is called Tea to Grain. It usually runs every Monday night throughout the golf season from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can, we stream it live on wvmetronews.com, and you just click on Listen Live, and we've got cameras in the studio and everything else. And then next week, we're going to be on every single night. Again, wvmetronews.com, and you'll see a live from the Greenbrier Classic. You can click on that, and it'll take you right to our show. My co-host, Fred Persinger, has been a radio professional for over 40 years, and we'll do live interviews with players and celebrities and uh, tournament chairman, tournament directors, and Jim Justice, who owns the Greenbrier. So it's always a great show. It's an awful lot of fun to do. Our studio is set up right outside the first tee. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of prep work. As you know, Chris, it takes a lot of prep work to do a good radio show. And uh, we do the prep work during the day. And by the time we get uh, 7 o'clock rolls around, we are rocking and rolling. There you go. And uh, you mentioned uh, you're out on Twitter. Remind our listeners how they can follow you over social media. Yeah, my Twitter my Twitter is at BobFriend underscore golf. BobFriend at underscore golf. And uh, I'll throw some pearls out there of, you know, in the United States we still like opinions, at least I think we do. And uh, throw my <laughs> opinions out there, some instruction and some, uh, you know, pearls of golf wisdom, so to speak. There you go. Bob, thank you so much for coming back and uh, joining me again this morning. As I said many times on this show, my dream fivesome includes uh, you and, uh, and and Paul Stankowski, Eric Johnson, my father, uh, our next, uh, my next guest, Sean McKeel, also joining you know, that list as well. But uh, you're one of the delights. I can't thank you enough for being a part of the show. It's always an honor and a privilege to get the opportunity to share the airwaves with you, my friend. Chris, it's always great being with you. And to all the men and the women in the United States military, thank you so much for protecting our freedom and our liberty. And God bless, and I hope everybody comes home safely. There you go. Bob, thanks again. All the best uh, to you, to your father, and the rest of your family. I look forward to the opportunity, hopefully, to catch up with you again real soon. Thanks so much, Chris. God bless. All right. Take care, Bob. Bye-bye now. That's Bob Fred Jr. Again, uh, you know, one of the great guys, and if you're not following him on Twitter, you should be. Uh, great stuff that he has out there, and uh, you know, from his opinions to information to instructions, great stuff from from Bob Friend, a good friend of the show, and uh, certainly, you know, as we look forward to you know the U.S. Open in 2016 at Oakmont, not only is Bob going to be a great resource for us here on the show, but also a great wealth of knowledge, and uh, look forward to catching up with him again, hopefully, uh, like I say, real soon. All right, now now joining me on the Seymour Putters guest line is uh, our good friend and 2003 PGA champion, Sean McKeel. And this week, he is joined by Miranda Harbour. And Miranda is uh, involved with the the uh, local chapter for the Make-A-Wish Foundation there in the Memphis area, uh, a, a uh, an organization that we believe heavily and so heavily that we've got a link uh, to their chapter on our website, nextonthetea.net. So please go there, link to it, and uh, and check out what they're doing. But they are doing such wonderful things uh, for children, and we can't thank them both enough for being a part of the show this morning. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Miranda. Good morning. Good morning. So, Sean, take us through, and you know, you've shared with us in the past the, you know, why you know that organization, the Make a Wish Foundation, is important to you, and when you've uh, when you start first started getting involved with it. But I'd love for you to retell the story, and then let's bring in Miranda to talk about all the wonderful things you guys are doing together. 
No, that's great. Well, Miranda's going to have a funny story about uh, another professional golfer becoming involved with Make-A-Wish, so I'll let her tell that. But, um, you know, in 2001 or so, I got involved just in helping John Daly, who was um, was the host of the event for, for a number of years. And um, Patricia Brown, who I guess was the director, I'll, I'll just use the word director uh, of the chapter, um, she was a neighbor of mine, and so she really kind of introduced me more into what Make-A-Wish was all about and, um, you know, the families and the children and, and kind of how the whole process of granting a wish and receiving a wish, how that kind of came uh, came to light and uh, or comes to light. And, um, you know, so there was a way for me to be involved, but I, I really wanted something at some point in my career to have of my own. And anything in this world is about timing. And John had left, I think, in 2003, I believe, and to, to form his own foundation, which I think is the Lion's Heart Foundation, which left a void here in Memphis. And there was a lot of support around town um, for the event. Uh, John, you know, brought in a lot of celebrities and, and things uh, and people like that to to really showcase his event. And uh, when he left, I just happened to win a small tournament called the PGA Championship. And it wasn't really that long after that I was approached by Patricia to, to ask me if I wanted to, to become more involved and made me have my own tournament. And and after getting to know the, the girls and, and um, you know, talking to Stephanie, it was an, it was an easy uh, answer uh, to, to, be able, to be able to give back to my community. So the story's probably a little bit longer than that, but that's kind of the Reader's Digest version, I think, of it. And, you know, we're in our 12th year this year, and um, you know, each year I wonder, golly, how's this, you know, is this going to continue? And, and the barometer really for me and the committee, at least on my end, is team sales. And uh, we seem to sell out every year by January or February. And uh, so it's been, you know, uh, extremely successful and something that's really uh, been a huge part of my life along with my wife, Stephanie. Randy. Please, you know, piggyback on, on Sean. Talk about, you know, your involvement with the local chapter there and uh, looking forward to hearing the story. Sure. So I'm I'm on staff for, for Make-A-Wish, and I have the pleasure of working, you know, with with Wish families and local volunteers and, and donors. And I, when I, you know, first came to work with Make-A-Wish, and I thought, oh, this is great, you know, a, a celebrity golf tournament or, you know, this this big shot, you know, PGA Tour winner guy. This is so nice that he does this for us. And I was fully expecting it to be one of those things where, you know, the guy shows up the day of and, you know, shakes hands and kind of um, goes about his business and, and you know, ra- raises money and, and does a good thing but isn't necessarily invested and. In, I was so humbled in meeting Sean and his family because not only is Sean involved in the tournament and sits on the committee and and voices his opinions on how to make the tournament better and, you know, things that we can do to improve and raise more money, his entire family supports him. Um, We are watching his children grow up, you know, alongside alongside our children and his wife, Stephanie, um, his dad, Buck, I mean, all of their family is so incredibly supportive and and really gets involved and they get to know our wish families and one thing that we that that I think is a, a really wonderful thing that Sean has done a great job of doing is making sure that the tournament stays focused on the children. He is such a humble and selfless person in wanting to make sure that 
the WISH kids and WISH families and that the mission is incorporated in every element of the tournament. So at the pairings party that we do at the wonderful world-famous rendezvous in downtown Memphis, we grant a WISH um, and or have a WISH family to come and speak every single year so that all the golfers and their you know, spouses and, and friends can get to experience that element of the mission of what it means for these families to receive a WISH. And then the day of the tournament, we have WISH Kid team captains who were there so that every golf team has a WISH child who they are playing for and that they get to meet and have their picture taken with. And, and that has been the most wonderful experience to be able to go out and say that we are so proud that Sean McKeel gives his name to our organization and to know all of the people who are behind him to support it, to make it happen. And and to that end, Miranda, you talk about, you know, the party and being able to grant wishes, you know, share, share some of the stories for some of the wishes that uh, your organization and Sean have been able to grant. It is incredible. Wish, wish kids can, can wish um, for one of four things. There's roughly four categories that the wishes fall into travel. They can wish to go somewhere um, they can wish to meet someone, such as their favorite celebrity or their favorite athlete or musician. They can wish to have something like a computer or a shopping spree or a new golf club. Um, or they can wish to be someone for a day, like a police officer or you know a veterinarian or some, or something like that. And so, over the years, the wishes that that have come through through the golf tournament have ranged anywhere from children and their families who are going to the Walt Disney World Resort um, to, you know, just anything that you can, that you can imagine. I know there's golfing wishes that Sean has been involved with. And I think the thing that is, is the most significant is that no matter what the wish is, no matter how expensive, expensive or extravagant or even how simple it is this child's most heartfelt desire. And there are people hundreds of people behind the scenes who are making it happen. There are the people who are giving the money and the volunteers who are making it happen. And for us, for a wish family who has gone through the unthinkable, for parents who have sat there contemplating and worrying and and hoping that their child is going to beat this life-threatening medical condition, they're, you know, they're hoping against, you know, all odds. So for Make-A-Wish to be able to come in and give this life experience that they are able to take a chapter out of their life story and, and make it a good one and a good experience that we know these families deserve is so incredible. And I've had the honor, I've been with Make-A-Wish for about eight years now, and I've had the honor of watching Sean and Stephanie's faces when they get to tell a child that their wish has come true. And the the excitement, the joy, there's tears, um, and the Wish families are forever connected. I remember there was one year that there was a little blonde-headed boy named Bryce, and we granted the Wish out at TPC Southwind to go to um, to go to Disney World, and we had a game set up where he played against against um, I think one of our board members and and maybe even Sean, and they they were so great and such good sports about it, but. They really believe in experiencing that, you know, alongside with the families. And, and I've heard Sean and Stephanie both say many, many times that how grateful they are, um, you know, just to be able to be involved with Make-A-Wish and, and how, you know, how much it gives them perspective on life. 
Randy, you, you use the term incredible in, in uh, Sean's space. And Sean, um, one of the great things that uh, I was able to, to find, and you and I had the conversation earlier this week, but um, there's a wonderful video that Turner Sports put together a couple of years ago about the Make-A-Wish Foundation and, and the Seven Iron and um, the raw emotion on your face as you have the opportunity to be involved uh, with this organization and with these children is is absolutely uh, something that is is moving to me, and I was very proud to share uh, over social media. But talk about your involvement with this organization, but also this Turner Sports video that was put together a few years back. Well, you know, I had some a, a few issues with the producer when that first piece first came to me. Um, you know, I've not made it through uh, one speech to the children at the Wish uh, Wish Kid party without, uh, you know, becoming emotional. It's I think that's the part that I was really, <clears throat> I think, surprised by uh, when I became involved is just how quickly um, you feel, um, you know, a lot of empathy, a lot of sympathy for these families. And, you know, every one of us would just love to just reach out and touch that child and just take their illness away. And I, I, you know, I feel that way. Not, uh, I think, even more so as as a parent. Um, there was a young lady named Carson Head. Um, she was, I think, going to be a fourth grader, and she went to the school. She went to school with my children, and she passed away yesterday of osteosarcoma. So these things and these children, um, although the treatments and stuff are, uh, they're out there, and we're so lucky to have Labonner and St. Jude Children's Research Hospital here to fight these diseases, um, you know, you just never know what their long-term um, prognosis is going to be. So it's extremely emotional to me. Um, and I was so proud that, uh, of what, of what they produced. Uh, I think it really shows, um, and I put that out there as well, just to really reiterate my involvement with, and Stephanie's involvement with this incredible group. I mean, you know, incredible seems to be the word of the day, but I don't really know how else to put it. It's, um, you know, I I would do anything for them. Um, you know, I've I've done a lot of charity events, and Miranda spoke to the fact that our our, our mission is to focus on the children. So when we first got the tournament going, there were some on the first couple of meetings that felt like, okay, we need to bring PJ Tour pros in here. We need to bring these these guys in, and uh, you know, we can maybe make more money and, and those types of things and give people an opportunity to play with some of your friends and uh, colleagues or whatever. And I just decided that, you know, there's just no sense of doing that. I, there's a lot of logistical issues with, with moving players around and getting, in, getting them into one location, particularly with things like rain delays or, or those types of things, just trying to coordinate the travel. And so we just focused everything on, on the children. So, yes, yeah, every, every – you know, Monday we have a Wish Kid party, and you know the team captains are the Wish Kid children. There's usually about fourteen, fifteen, maybe sixteen, um, and they don't all get to come to the to the to the party. I mean, most of them are well enough to come, but it takes a lot of work behind the scenes with with the coordinators and the doctors and everything to approve a lot of this stuff for these children. So. Um, I, I don't really know how to describe it. I think that, that if anybody watches that video and they see the part of me giving I'm a, my quote-unquote speech to these families about, you know, how much I care about them, I think that, that just really that, – that sums it up. And uh, it's every year the same way. And, and uh, it's, 
it's it's nice to be able to get my children my children involved. They're eleven and eight, so they've been a part of this for a long time, and um, I'm just I'm so just so lucky to be to be involved. Miranda, for for our listeners that want to get more involved and be a part of what you guys are doing there, you know, in the mid south in the Memphis area, talk talk about how they can reach out, how they can get more information, and where they can find you guys online and potentially over social media as well. Sure. So Make-A-Wish is a national organization. There are 61 chapters all across the United States, including international affiliates. So there are opportunities for engagement no matter where where you may live. And so if, so if you're outside of the Mid-South and even just want to know about Make-A-Wish, you can visit wish.org. Um, there's a great zip code finder in there, and, and they can connect you, um, you know, to your local chapter. And locally for the Mid-South area, we we ask for people to share their time, their treasures, or their talents with us. And so that is either, you know, making a contribution. Um, Sean is, you know, raising money for the tournament. There's links that he has available, you know, through his social media accounts. But you can visit midsouth.wish.org, and it gives you a lot more information about Make-A-Wish, all the different ways to get involved, all the different levels of, of donations and volunteering. And even if you know of a child who has a life-threatening medical condition who could use our help, midsouth.wish.org or wish.org, either of those websites can get you connected to and give you all the information that you need about Make-A-Wish and how to get more involved. That's fantastic. Miranda, thank you for for coming on and joining us this morning and and sharing what's going on with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, what what you've got going on there. It's fantastic stuff, and it's very important, and and, uh, I hope uh, we're able to generate some additional interest for you and people getting involved, whether it is in in the Mid-South area. And by Mid-South area, for those who aren't from or live around the Memphis area, sort of around in and around Memphis, Tennessee, and that part of the country. Uh, but if they're not there, then the wish.org piece. But thank you for uh, for coming on and joining us. And like I say, we've got a link on our site to yours, but we'd love to you know get more involved and uh, let us know how we can help because it's an important cause and uh, um, we feel very strongly about it as well. Thank you so much. Take care, Miranda. Thanks, y'all too. Thanks, Miranda. Thank you, Sean. Miranda Harbor, again, for for midsouth.wish.org and the local Make-A-Wish Foundation in, in the Mid-South and Memphis area. Sean, thank you for uh, for turning us on to, to this. I know it's, a like I say, a cause that you've been involved with for many years, but uh, it's great to have someone like Miranda come on, and, and it helps bring it home and, and uh, you know generate awareness, and I hope that uh, we get uh, a few more folks uh, in that area and around the country involved because it's a wonderful cause. Well, there's no doubt, and you know the other thing, and I think Miranda is hung up now. But but you know when I maybe the first first or second year that I became involved with this event, um, you know this really hit home for me. Um, I think you know Make a Wish um, they help children with life threatening medical conditions to enrich the human spirit through hope, strength, and joy. That's their motto. And uh, I was told a story by someone at Make-A-Wish, that um, there was a child that had, um, I guess, either overheard a few things or really understood what Make-A-Wish was all about. And when they heard their wishes being granted, um, the child asked the parent, I don't know if it was the mom or the mom, it could have been both, whether that must mean that they're going to die now. And, 
you know, that, those are the types of things that, that, you know, you see every single day. Um, it just breaks your heart. And I think Mekowish right. kind of had to re, reword a few of the things. But, um, you know, that's what it's all about. These, these children and these families, it is heart-wrenching to see um, the terror in their face. I mean, I visited St. Jude countless times, and uh, it never amazes me just how strong the kids are and and facing these these horrible horrible diseases. So, um, as much money as I can raise, I'm I'm certainly trying to do that um, to give these ch- children an opportunity to enjoy life and and uh, I'll say become become quote unquote normal people. Um, if it's for a week, a day, or whatever that case may be, it's um, it's important to uh, and it's again humbling to see. Uh, you know the looks on their faces and their parents' faces when they get their wish granted. I bet. You know, and it's interesting, Sean, uh, to, when you watch the video and uh, just knowing, you know, as I've come to know you over the the last several months, that uh, that you've been gracious enough to be a part of this show, and you've told the story uh, a couple of times lately about you know what an introverted person you typically are, but you know to to see you out in front and making these sorts of speeches. You know, it's interesting, you know, to know that, you know, you're you're a guy that likes to, you know, not necessarily be a part of the spotlight, but here you are sort of coming out of your comfort zone to give those sorts of speeches and and to, you know, be a spokesperson for this organization. So that's uh, that's quite something for you. And uh, kudos to you for uh, for doing it and stepping out of that comfort zone to be a part of what's going on here. Yeah, uh, I mean. You know, that part's really easy. I guess, you know, when you're really passionate about something and uh, you, you feel as strongly as as, as I do uh, about Make-A-Wish, uh, it's really easy to do. Um, you know, everybody seems to be good at something, and Miranda communicates the mission um, of Make-A-Wish incredibly well. And so uh, I've been fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of great people, a lot of great committee members, and even more supporters from the city of Memphis. And um, as I said, you know, we sell out in January or February of every year. We've got 34 teams playing this year, and uh, a lot of them are friends of mine, and a lot of them aren't. You know, a lot of the people that I, I don't – I just meet for the first time at the pairings party, which will be tomorrow night at the world-famous Rendezvous restaurant. And, um, you know, it's uh, it all comes together to create an event that I just – once it's over – um, and I kind of get a couple days. I can't wait for it. I start thinking about the next year and what can I do to improve. And it's not always about can we raise more money. I don't always look at things as um, whether or not they're successful is if you you made more money than you, you did the year before. I mean, my goal is to share with this with these people and these players and the volunteers just how great this event is. And it's, so it's much more than just my tournament. It's about getting people involved with Make-A-Wish. I mean, there are so many hundreds and thousands of different charities out there, and it's it's hard to be involved in all of them, even though I'd love to be. And so um, I'm able to kind of focus, you know, all of my attention really on, on this one event to try to, you know, just make it a great experience for everybody. And, and to that end, I think we've done that. There you go. Congratulations on that. Sean, let's 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 get to. We've got several questions again this week uh, from from our listeners. Be, before we actually get to some of those questions, I got a couple for you as well. And uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, but I wanted to get your thoughts as we reflect back. We've talked a, 
to Ben Wright earlier, Bob Bob Friend Jr. a moment ago about what we saw last week at uh, at the U.S. Open in Chambers Bay. Gary Player called the course a travesty for how it was yeah. set up. But uh, your thoughts? What did what did you think about uh, what you saw at the U.S. Open in Chambers Bay? Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of the, a lot of the comments were were pretty disappointing. Some of the actions by some of the players, you know, Billy Horschel, and I think who has since apologized. It's, and of course, look, it's easy to comment from afar. Uh, I've, I've been in their situations before. I've felt some of the same things. I've probably said some of the same things. So I don't think I'm really being hypocritical of their of their uh, of their comments. I think it's just unfortunate. You know, when I think of the U.S. Open, I mean, I just have this thing in my mind of, of what I saw when I was a child and a young player is that, you know, the tree-lined, winding fairways, they're very deep, rough, you know, very penal off the tee. And at some point during uh, the last 10 to 15 years, or, you know, maybe even goes back to 99, I think 1999, which was my first U.S. Open, it was really one of the first courses that I'd seen or played that didn't have the deep rough around the green. They started this, we're going to shave the areas around and let the balls roll off. And I don't know if that is is indicative of the technology, the balls, the, the guys using 60-degree and, sixty in some cases, 64-degree wedges to extricate themselves from around the green, or if the guys just have gotten so good around the greens that it wasn't, wasn't presenting too much of a challenge. Although you might make bogey, you're probably not going to make double. So I don't know what their thinking was. I didn't look at the golf course as a U.S. Open type of golf course um, just from a viewer on TV. Um, the comments from what I'm understanding about the greens are legitimate or were legitimate. Um, I don't, you know, can some of that stuff be done in in, in private, I suppose so, but not everybody has access to Mike Davis's cell phone. Uh, you know, there's a certain number of guys that probably have access to Mike, and, you know, Mike seems to be open enough to, to listen to the, some of the comments. Um, they were very quiet, which I thought was unusual from what I saw on making any type of comment on any part of the golf course. Um, so, you know, it just, to me, the U.S. Open is about what I said earlier. It's about the winding fairways, the deep rough, the tight fairways, you know, the fast greens, the difficult pin positions and those types of things. And and although you saw some of the deep, you know, some of the difficult pin positions, there was a lot of in that U.S. Open that reminded me of Augusta, that if you hit a pretty decent shot, you can use some of the sideboards and the slopes to get it close to the hole. Uh, you know, you look at Jordan Spieth shot in the last hole. It was incredible what he hit a three-wood in there, five-wood, I don't know, something like that, and it was off to the right. Yeah. Any other course, that just runs off the green and goes into the bunker, and he was able to take advantage of that of that particular slope and get it really close for eagle. Great shot, and you got a great champion, but that's not what I see in the U.S. Open. The other thing is I don't think they presented the best product. Um, the United States Open Championship is about presenting – um, look, not everything's perfect, so I'm, I'm not going to use that word. You know, there are imperfections in grass, okay, whether it's on the fairways or the greens or whether it's discoloration, which people are just amazed. It amazes me that they're so uh, enamored with green. You know, I travel to Europe, and I see brown all the time, and I think the surface absolutely looks wonderful. It plays it plays well, but they didn't provide the, bre- the best surfaces for the players to play on. And although I think they got – the, the, a great champion and the person that obviously played the best because he scored the best. Um, I, I'm not so sure that, that 
that uh, they presented the best product. When uh, Dustin Johnson missed his eagle putt on 18 and then the birdie putt didn't drop either, what went through your mind? Well, I was, I was listening to it driving home from Florida on XM radio, and um, I was sick. You know, um, you know, he got the ball into the fairway, and uh, I think uh, whoever was commentating with that group, you know, said he was going to have a middle iron into the green. You know, I really thought good for Dustin because all that happened to him in 2010 at Whistling Straits, um, I thought maybe redemption was due. And he's and he's done well in a, in a couple of the other majors. You know, the 2010 U.S. Open as well uh, before just a, a kind of a terrible, a terrible day. I thought, you know, here's some redemption for him. And, you know, just thinking to myself, I thought, you know, he's going to have a downhill putt. So he's not going to have a problem getting into the hole. You know, I think most people would be concerned with, you know, getting it online and, and not thinking really about the speed, but he didn't have to worry about, really worry about that. Um, and when it went by, um, I don't know, I think all of us just kind of assumed he was just going to walk up and had a couple of feet. But when I saw on TV, I was actually surprised it went that far by. But, um, you know, it's just the moment. Um, it affects everybody. And uh, would he make that putt nine out of ten times? Absolutely. But it was just, you know, a combination of, Maybe a, maybe a little bit of a bumpy service uh, combined with the opportunity to, to, to get into a playoff for the United States Open is uh, it, it's sometimes hard to handle. So I, I really felt for him, and I, and I feel for him today. I, I really do. I just, um, as a player, uh, you know, I know exactly how he feels. He seemed to handle it very well. There was a lot reported about him not attending the, the post-round ceremony. Um, I didn't have an issue with that. Um, I think he gave a very gracious interview afterwards to to everyone, and um, and he basically just got himself out of the way to to allow the champion uh, his due. And um, so I'm not critical at all on on his decision not to attend that. Well, will the will this U.S. Open be remembered just as much for you know, Dustin Johnson losing it as it, as it will be for uh, Jordan Spieth winning it? Yeah, I suppose so. But you know, Dustin didn't lose it. I mean, he he just missed an opportunity to 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 get into a playoff. I mean, you can look at the twelve or thirteen footer that he had for Eagle. Uh, you know, not an easy putt at all. And uh, you know, so there may be some of that. But you know, that story has already kind of has has really been pushed aside now with with Jordan's opportunity right now to win the Grand Slam. So I think that those. Um, you know, that story about Dustin losing it, I don't really think it's there's much there just because, you know, he needed that putt to get into a playoff and he could just as easily not played well on Monday and lost it to Justin. So um, I don't think so. I don't think it'll be remembered for, for Dustin losing it at all. As we uh, move on to some of our listener questions for this week, the first one that we got is when you were playing regularly on the tour, did other players have a fear of Tiger Woods? And was there a sense that everyone was just playing for second place? Uh, I don't know if they had a fear they were playing for second place, but but um, you know he has a he had an intimidating presence, no doubt. I mean the things that he was doing on the golf course. I mean his his uh, the way he thought on the golf course. You know he he wasn't afraid to hit any of the shots. I mean I've seen birdies that he made from places that, that most of us would have just chipped out and just try to make par. Um, he's an intimidating factor, no doubt. I mean, I think some of that still exists 
today when you walk into the room because you're you're uh, uh, you know when you go into say meet Jack Nicholas, uh, you're inspired and you're awe inspired by him, even though you know that you could probably beat him on the golf course. He just has this aura around him, and Tiger had that for for a long long time, and um, you know guys would would. Um, I think when they were paired with him, I think they're a little bit more nervous just because Tiger had a way of playing the game, the way that he struck his shots, um, the way that he could uh, get himself out of trouble, the short game, the putting. It just made your game look inferior. And I think that people weren't intimidated by him. I think they were intimidated by the way that he made their own game look, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think that's really what it was about. You know, all of us that played, you know, when you look at the tee sheet whenever Tiger was in the field, you never wanted to be in front of him. It was okay to play play with him, um, but if you were one group in front or even two groups in front, you know, you dealt with the mass of fans that uh, once Tiger was had holed out on the hole prior, everybody was running to the next hole to try to get a a, a good view, you know, of Tiger and his and his play. So it was difficult, but um, I always enjoyed playing with him. I played with him a number of times and was fortunate enough to, to beat him in the first round of the world match play in 2006, uh, which, you know, there have been a couple of guys that have beaten him in match play, but to say that, you know, he had won five tournaments in a row um, until I beat him in that match play, um, you know, I just, I don't know. I think you just got to go out and play golf, and I think that's what most people need to focus focus on. But again, I think people were hampered by how inferior he made everybody look on the golf course. You mentioned uh, dealing with the massive fans, and uh, the next question along that line says Tiger was always standoffish from the galleries. Was he that way in the locker room too? Uh, no, you know, Tiger, um, I, you know, I've sat down and had Tiger breakfast with Tiger a number of times, you know, for lunch. I mean, he would come into the locker room. He, he, um, uh, I think guys like that, when they, when they come into the locker room, they, they, uh, they just have this kind of presence about them. They walk in with a tremendous amount of confidence and they just know they're going to win. And you can see that and you feel that. But, um, he was not standoffish at all. I mean, I think he was so focused, and it's probably still focused on achieving all that he wanted to achieve in the game. And, and obviously, it's been you know been well documented that he wants to win more than more than Jack. He wants to win 19 majors, is what he'd like to get to. And so, I think that was always on his mind, and that was his sole focus. And he was so driven by that that there wasn't a lot of room for other people. And um, and I'll just say leave it at that because I think that's. Uh, I think when you get out there and you're shaking everybody's hand and talking and being friendly to everybody, it's hard to turn the switch from being that person to next to being inside the ropes and just being focused 100% on your golf. I mean, some guys are able to do that, but most of us aren't. And uh, most, most of us don't want to. Um, I enjoy, um, you know, playing great golf, and I know when I need to be focused, but I am not willing to give up some of the other things in my life, and that is my relationship with my friends, my family, and my fans, uh, the autograph seekers. I'm not willing to to burn that bridge so that I can achieve certain things in my life that I want to achieve. And obviously, they're not. My goals were never set as high as Tiger, and I'm and I've I've never been that good of a golfer, you know. So, um, 
I just wasn't willing to burn that bridge. And um, you've seen it in several players um, over the years that are now in the common, you know, in the, in the towers at, at CBS and, and other stations that they burn their bridges on the way up, and and they've kind of had to look for those friendships on the way back down. And uh, for some guys, the, friend, the the ladder the ladder rungs hold them up, and for some they go right back to the bottom because they've just burned too many bridges with their with their fans. And uh, I think people want to see Tiger succeed. Many don't. Um, many just want to see great golf, but they don't want him to get the record. So there's any number of things out there that, you know, you can ask people and, and, you know, they're going to get a, a different answer probably from, from everybody. A couple more, Sean, before we let you go. Uh, this next question, if you could go back in time and replay one shot, is there one you'd like to get over? Uh, well, I, I suppose there's probably, probably quite a few. I mean, I look back, uh first thing that really comes to my mind, I think, is the 2002 BC Open up in Endicott, which is now a Champions Tour event. And I had a three-shot lead going the last day, and I was looking to, uh, I think it was 1900 through three days, playing great. And uh, they were kind of talking to me about maybe breaking Jeff Sluman's record, which I think at the time was 22-under. And, uh, of course, I thought about that. Um, but I, on the 17th hole, I'd found myself I was tied for the lead and um, 17th hole was a par three, and it's a hole that I made a hole-in-one on, I think, the second round, in my second wow. round, 65. And uh, it was I just hit, a, hit an unbelievable shot over the green. It was just over, not an easy chip, but something you'd get up and down eight or nine out of ten you know, times. And I chipped it about, I don't know, about four, four and a half feet by. And I, I just hadn't missed a putt all week, and I I knew my position in the field, and I missed it, and then that subsequently forced me to try to bury the 18th hole. I mean, I think, think that's the first one that sticks out. But I mean, I've hit so many bad shots in my life. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's really hard to pick one. <laughs> we but, all? But just by you, I, yeah. You know, it affects all of us. I don't care what level you're at. It, it, it's, um, you know, bad shots seem to come at at, at inopp- inopportune times. But you know, I've, I've, there's so many out there, but that's the first one that really really comes to mind is just missing that four-footer straight up the hill, and I just missed it. The other one is, what's one piece of advice that someone has given you over the career that has stuck with you, and who gave it to you? My coach in college um, told me uh, when I when I left college, uh, he was uh, Sam Carmichael was his name, and he played the tour for six or seven years back in the 70s. And uh, he told me to stay off the range. And um, I think for a little bit of that, I listened to, and it's a piece of advice that I would share with everybody, but something that I haven't really listened to. Uh, I I just, when you get out there and you start practicing and and you're around all the great players and you're seeing kind of what they're doing, Um, you're trying new equipment, um, you know, you're listening to maybe some new instructions and new thoughts. It's easy to get caught up in, in hitting balls on the range, and and uh, I was able to do that for a long time. And I would say over the last eight to ten years, um, the range has kind of been my place to go, if you will, um, when I'm home, particularly, you know, uh, TPC Southwind. It seems like there's always something that I've been working on, and it's the one thing that I really – regret about um the way that i've done things and um i would certainly advocate 
and encourage anyone to, yeah, of course you got to hit balls. you got to warm up. There's always things to work on. But to spend hours and hours and hours, you know, like VJ Singh does, to, to kind of refine something that's really really unrefinable. I mean, everybody has their own golf swing. You've seen it in the advertising that Arnold Palmer does. Swing your swing, right? I mean, and I just I wasn't able to do that, and uh, I'm so sorry that I that I hadn't been able to continue on with that um, thought, you know, that he gave me. And um, you know, it's important to get out there and play shots. Uh, you know, once you once you get to a certain level, you know, you have the foundation of your golf swing, and there's always things to work on the range. And I think those are the I think those are the fundamentals. I think that's alignment, grip, stance, posture. Those types of things, ball position. Uh, it's okay to focus on those, but when you start getting focused on technique, and that's all you're doing, and it's uh, doesn't lead to very many good scores. And I think you're seeing that with Tiger. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And uh, it's good advice and uh, things something that a lot of golfers should should definitely heed. Sean, um, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can follow you again over on uh, both online and over social media. Yeah, well, you can just find me at Sean McKeel on Facebook, and then I'm at Sean McKeel PGA on um, on Twitter, and uh, and then I do have some links on there um, directing everyone to Make a Wish um, as well. So um, I love my followers. I, I get a couple new every day, um, and uh, just trying to grow that fan base. There you go. Sean, thank you for bringing Miranda as part of the show, and thank you for your time and uh, the great things that you're doing, uh, both uh, with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and, uh, and answering the questions that uh, that our listeners have for you. We appreciate your friendship and uh, joining me you know, as, as your schedule allows. It's, uh, it's been great fun having you as part of the show. It is fun. I've learned a lot, and I'm really enjoying, enjoying what we've kind of put together here. So uh, let's keep it going. Absolutely right. Me too. John, thank you, and uh, all the best to you and your family. We look forward to catching up with you again, hopefully, next week. Thanks, Chris. You too. All right. We'll see you. All right. All right. Take okay. care, Sean. Bye-bye. 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeough with doing some great work, like we say, with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and uh, answering your questions. If you want Sean to answer your question on the show, tweet me, at CT Mascaro, or uh, go to our Facebook page, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Send me uh Send me your uh, question, and we'll get it uh, on the air with Sean uh, next week. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this one. Before we close up shop, I certainly want to uh, remind you again about the great book that our friend Dave Stockton and Dave Stockton Jr. have called Own Your Own Game. If uh, you're getting your game going physically, like Sean talked about, and you're out and about uh, on the golf course, remember, so much of the game is played between that five-inch space between our ears. Get your mind right. And their latest book, The Stocktons, lets you know how to play winning golf. Own Your Own Game recreates the experience of riding 18 holes with Dave Stockton at one of his highly sought-after corporate outings and draws from his experience as a champion uh, champion player both on the regular tour and the senior tour, plus as a revered coach. He shows you how to think better, stay calmer, execute more consistently, and most importantly now, how to enjoy the game more thoroughly. Go to StocktonGolf.com to get your copy, and for a couple extra dollars, Mr. Stockton will even autograph it for you. All right, folks, my sincere thanks once again to Mr. Ben Wright, Bob Friend Jr., Sean McKeel, and Miranda Harbour for joining me today and for making this show so much fun to be a part of. We thank you for choosing to listen to this show. We appreciate you the very most. 
Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Mr. Bob Lazari, and our announcer, Joe LaGianusa. That show airs uh, every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear it live on Blog Talk Radio and on Armed Forces Radio as well. Plus, our friends over at uh, the Boost Radio Network uh, re-air the show Friday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. If you go to boostradionetwork.com, you can hear that show live from 8 to 10 on Thursdays. Uh, that show like this one is also available on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, and SoundCloud as well. Every week on Thursday Night Tailgate, we are uh, joined by legends from around the NFL and the CFL. We are official partners of the NFL Alumni Association, so we bring you the stars that you grew up watching. So uh, please check us out. Uh, and for more information about that show, you can go to ThursdayNightTailgate.com. This show you can find online at NextOnTheT.net. Plus, both of our shows have uh, Facebook pages as well. Give us an, a, a like. That's important to us, too. So uh, you can stay, you can stream or, any, or download any of our archive episodes for free from either site. Again, next on the T.net, ThursdayNightTailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our shows uh, from by going to those sites, and uh, you can stay up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be as well. All right, th- all right, folks, thanks again for listening to the show today. You know we appreciate it very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. And participate in Wendy's for a limited time. Meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Great things are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better. Like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. 